Radio. Jimmy, Jimmy Crane, Jimmy Crane's a nerd. Jimmy Crane's an improv nerd. Jimmy Crane's a nerd. Hey everybody, this is Jimmy Corain. You're listening to another episode of Improv Nerd, and we're sponsored by the Tampa Bay Improv Festival, which is November 17th through the 19th. Now, if you haven't visited Tampa Bay in November, you're missing the sunshine and an improv revolution. Last year's festival brought together teams from New York, Chicago, Austin, Boston, San Francisco, London, and other great cities for three days of sold-out shows and workshops. Submissions are open until August 31st at Tampa Bay improvfestival.com. Join the party in Florida. Do Tampa Bay Improv. This episode is also sponsored by the Green Bay Improv Festival, as it celebrates five years of bringing the best improvisers to Northeast Wisconsin. Now, this year's festival will run October 21st, 22nd, 28th, and 29th. They're now accepting submissions now through August 31st. Submissions are being accepted via the Improv Network at theimprovnetwork.org. For more information, check out the Green Bay Improv Festival on Facebook. And don't forget, if you like what we're doing here on Improv Nerd and you like this episode or past episodes, do me a favor. Go to iTunes and write a nice review. It would really help with my low self-esteem. We have got another great episode of Improv Nerd for you today. The international improv teacher and performer and a good friend. I've known him for a long time, Joe Bill. He's the co-founder of the Annoyance Theater. He tours with Mark Howard Sutton in Bass Prob, and he's taught at the I.O., Second City, in the Annoyance Theater, and all over the world. In this live episode that we recorded at the Beat Lounge at the Second City Training Center in Chicago, we talked to Joe about why he got into stand-up and then got out of stand-up. We also talked to him about the beginning of the Annoyance Theater and his unique philosophy on improv. Now, this is a master class. Since this is a live show, it's an interview and We improvise together, and Joe lays it out there, not only before we do the scene, but after he breaks it down. You are going to love this episode. It is so, I learned a lot from it, and I'm always trying to learn, and Joe gives me a little shit in this episode, but it's true. I need to keep learning. Before we get to this episode, I just want to say you're probably tired of me bitching about, you know, uh, having a baby and being tired all the time. That hasn't changed. Um, So I'm going to spare you that. But I am still waiting after almost six weeks. Where is that joy? Where is that joy with getting a baby? I am just tired. I am depressed all the time. I am angry. I'm still questioning why at 52 I decided with my wife Lauren to have a baby. It's, it's, It's just not a good thing right now. I'm not having a good time. And so I brought this to my therapist. Now, you got to understand that I've been going to therapy for 10 years, twice a week, group therapy. It's an hour and a half every time I go. So I said to him, you know, and, and I'll tell you something. The reason I got into therapy is because I want to be, I want to be successful in my career. I want to be more successful than I am now. And I would like to make a lot of money and be famous. I'm going to lay it out there. I'm not holding back today. And so I said, you know, what, what is, you know, what, what is going on? What is holding me back? And I don't know if this is a medical diagnosis or not, but he said, you know what your problem is? You're a curmudgeon, but you're in denial about being a curmudgeon. And so you need to be more of a curmudgeon is, is what I got out of it. And I, 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 don't, I don't want you to think that I'm a negative person. But you know what? I am a negative person. And you know what? I am a curmudgeon. As they said in the group therapy, come out of the curmudgeon closet. And it's very hard because I don't even realize how curmudgeonly, is that even a word that I am? But you know what? My wife, Lauren... She calls me a she calls me a curmudgeon quite often. So uh, I, you know what? If, if that means I, I'm going to be more successful if I'm a curmudgeon, I am. I'm going to try my best to being a curmudgeon. But man, I'm going to tell you, it's hard. Okay, enough about me. You're going to love this episode with Joe Bill. Like I said, it's like a master class, and he has so much to say about improv. And it's just he he's he's this guy's put a lot of thought into it. He's put a lot of work into himself. 
and a lot of work into improv. And and the thing I respect about Joe is he will play with anybody. It doesn't matter what the age, doesn't matter what the genre is. Uh, he will do it. So here it is. I hope you enjoy this because I had a blast in this episode. Um, and keep that between us. Here it is, the Joe Bill episode. Enjoy. How long have we known each other? I think, let's say, over 30 years. And we, it was at the Annoyance, right? That's when we first met? I believe so. I, I honestly do not remember the first time we met. Okay, because I do think... You? No, I don't. But I, we did Code Prison Sluts together, and you played Henry, and, and I was Hamster Man. Man. Yeah. Yep. I wish James Lipton was here to ask yes. us about it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, were those good times for you at the Annoyance back then? Because that, that's back in the early 90s, I think it was, well, before, before on Broadway, it was Metroform. So right, which was the, the name because they played at uh, the Metro, Metro, which was a rock club. Which is a rock club uh, up on the fourth floor. But we, uh, at that time, we were in uh, Cross Currents. So uh, IO was, or Improv Olympic at the time, was downstairs. And then upstairs, uh, the first shows we did were Splatter Theater, uh, one and two, and then Co-Ed Prison Sluts, I think, was 1989. But I remember, too, because we were at the theater together at its height where it had the real-life Brady Bunch and everybody, you know, like it was the hot theater. Yeah. You would leave to do stand-up for, for weekends and for weeks at a time, and then you'd come back and you'd play Henry. Uh, right. I Well, Bob Fisher was the original Henry, and I, could, I actually was in the original cast of Co-Ed Prison Sluts, but I had to drop out because I was helping to open up Shuba's. Which was a music club. A uh, music club uh, on Belmont and Southport. And I was also doing stand-up. So they put co-ed prison sluts up. Bob Fisher immediately got hired for touring company. And then I went in for Bob Fisher. And, um, and I think that was uh, a couple of years into the run of co-ed prison sluts. I was doing less and less stand-up. And I had my own kind of end-of-the-road story. I was in L.A. and they... You know, it's like, oh, no, I don't want to do stand-up. What was that story? What happened? Okay. Uh, so I, I, had, uh, I went out to audition for the improv for Bud Friedman, and there was, he had two kind of uh, big guys that uh, I had sent them a 45-minute tape. I was like headlining some B rooms or something. And I went out there, and at the time, they had a club in Santa Monica and then the big club on Melrose. So I went to Santa Monica, and I had 10 minutes, and I destroyed. It was awesome. And I had a bit that was about a seven-minute bit that was about back in the Clarence Thomas, Anita Hill <laughs> days when Clarence Thomas was being interviewed for the Supreme Court. And I had a bit that was, it was kind of edgy and funny and slightly dark, and I, I, don't, I couldn't recreate it for you. But I did that, and I killed, and they're like, oh, Bud wants to see you in, at the Melrose Club on uh, Monday, but we want you to do, um, not the set that you did tonight, we want to see you do torturing your cats with... Um, with yogurt cups, and we want to see you do uh, flying on an airplane, like all this hack stuff. But you, that's stuff you did, right? Yeah, it's, it's stuff that I did that was like to do 45 minutes. I would do some hack stuff, but it's like if I was going to be on TV, then I wanted to do not the stuff that everybody was doing like in the 80s and 90s. And I said, no, I just want, why can't I just do the set I just did? And they said, that's not how it works. And I said, but like, um, it's my material. It's like, no, if you, you need to understand, you have to do material that mom and pop in Omaha can enjoy. And I just said, well, why can't I just do this set and just, we can just test it and see if it works because I know it'll work. That's not how it works, Joe. If you want to be in this industry and then the, they turned into Charlie Brown's teacher, like, rah, 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 rah. And then I just went, I don't want to do this. And, and from that point, uh, I didn't stay. I flew back to Chicago. I came back to the Annoyance, and I. You didn't even do the. You didn't even do the set. No, because I wouldn't do. That's my defiant. <laughs> it's like you're not going to tell me. Like I saw that as a seminal moment where if I agree to do this and let these clowns tell me what material I'm doing, you know what it was, Jimmy? It was my Dave Chappelle moment. <laughs> <laughs> it was my moment where like, uh, no, I'm not going to. Do you look back? Because there's so many opportunities that I've really fucked up. You know. Do you look at that as defiant or self-sabotage? Whoa. Now the interview starts. Uh, wow. I think at, uh, that was during a big self-sabotage part of my life. 
So I think it was maybe both. Um, and I think it was, initially it was just recognizing the context, like now these people are going to tell me what to do. And I've never been a person that was You don't good. like authority. I don't like authority. Right. I don't, I... Uh, I'm the oldest of five and I'm, and I'm not the type of oldest kid that takes care of the parents and I'm going to please you. I'm that one third of oldest kids. It's like, fuck you. I'm out of here. And I reject everything you stand for. And so that part of me, that part of me was present. But we also at the annoyance at that time, and I was even guilty of this, there was an arrogance about us because we were the hot theater. We were kind of in your face. We were anti second city. I, for me, my experience of the annoyance was like, it was a great time. It was uh, riddled with self-sabotage. <clears throat> and I don't think I was, I think there were people that were more aware of being a part of something that was edgy, but I looked at it like it was an island of misfit toys. A lot of people that were fucked up with a lot of different things. And Mick just provided a context for us to put all of our fucked up life stories on stage and to music often. <laughs> and so, and so, and the consequence was it showed up as being edgy and dark, but it's just because it was like musical therapy on stage for people to watch with horrific thoughts underscored by beautiful face soloing music. <laughs> um, your senior year of high school. Yes. Okay, you decide to give up playing a championship basketball to pursue theater. Yeah, I didn't know that they were going to win the championship. Okay, so tell us the story. So uh, I'm, I was a captain of junior varsity uh, at Broad Ripple High School my junior year. In I, Indiana, which is a big basketball. It's a huge basketball uh, town. A, town. Uh, Indiana is a town. Um, <laughs> it's, a, it's a big basketball state. Yeah. I mean, it, it's like a religion. It is like a religion. It's, it's, it's Hoosiers. Mm -hmm. it, uh, and so I got cast in, uh, was it, uh, maybe it was Diary of Anne Frank. <laughs> and I... Uh, Who did you play in that? I was Mr. Crawler, the oh, lifeline. Because sure, sure, sure. I'm tall and Dutch looking. Yes. Um, and so I went to the basketball coach and I said... Uh, do you mind if I get out of basketball practice early, like half an hour early for a month while I, so I can go to rehearsal? And this is where the basketball coach said, uh, you know, you need to make a decision, young man, on what you want to do with your life. Uh, and as the joke goes, uh, I decided then on the spot that I would rather get applause performing than running wind sprints and working uh, for a state championship. And lo and behold, that team uh, in 1980, the Broad Ripple Rockets, were the state champion uh, of Indiana high school basketball. And I gave up a state championship ring. But later that year, uh, I was named to the Indiana All-Star cast and the top actor in the state of Indiana in all of high school. Thank you. Which meant nothing compared to giving up a state championship ring. So. How did what did you feel about missing out on that ring? Um, well, I felt like uh, I felt like uh, my fa my father was not happy. He was not he was not happy that I made the decision. But that was the first time I stood up and said, "This is who I am." How did he confront you on that? Um, he uh, he sighed and like gritted his teeth and was like, "Well, you know, it's uh, uh, I don't even remember what the words were, but it was just, he was, that was my last chance at sports, and my dad was a big sports guy. I was made to play sports uh, year-round, and the only one I hated was baseball because my skin is not made for sun, uh, and the dirt and the bugs and the sweat, and ugh, like, I, I don't like summer. Um, and I was a terrible baseball player because I had a floating eye and I had to play first base. And so when the ball would come to me from the shortstop or the third baseman, it would split in two just past the pitcher, and I didn't know which ball to catch. Uh, and then there was a dad in Little League, Mr. Cooper, who would always, I would only play half the game at first base, and whenever I would go out to first base, Mr. Cooper would say, oh, shit, here comes that Bill kid. <laughs> so so uh, most of my sports career outside of basketball was a disappointment to my father, but in basketball, I was pretty good. I wasn't going to play college or anything, but when I quit to do theater, I think he saw that as me making the easy choice or me making 
a choice to have fun instead of working. And so, um, so the big thing was when they won the state championship, it was like it validated my father's opinion that I should have done that. Um, and that when I went to the state thespian conference, like he just, he, my dad was great, but he just didn't understand why theater. Uh, so for me, it's uh, giving up the, the ring hurt and knowing that I could have had that, uh, it tortured me for a while. But the two times that I've thought about quitting theater, that I've thought about quitting being an actor because I didn't have a state championship ring, that's the thing that made me say, nope, I'm sticking with this. Uh, and that's, so maybe that shallow attachment, you know, or that pain is what, you know, has me sitting with you here today, Jimmy. And then you go to Indiana University, and that's where you meet, you meet Mick Napier. Yep. You meet Howard, Mark Howard Sutton. Mm -hmm. And then how do you end up in Chicago? So I was the first one from our improv group to move up here. I'd met, uh, I met Dell during my senior year when a guy, uh, <laughs> A guy, Charlie Hyatt, said, yeah, you, there's this new kind of improv that's going on up here. I want you to meet Del Close. And he's like, yeah, he's a junkie, hippie, beat, whatever. And, uh, and I was pretty sure I wanted to come study at Second City. And so uh, we, we drive up to Chicago to meet Del. And Del's living across from Second City. And he lives in a studio apartment. And you walk in the apartment, and all the walls are covered by bookcases. And then there's mazes of bookcases that you walk through to get to the front corner where there's a mattress on the ground and two cats. <laughs> What's it smell like? Um, it smelled like a library with cat urine in it. Um, and then, and here's Del, and he's kind of mumbling to himself. And, um, and I was like, holy shit, like he looked like a ghost from a pirate ship from, <laughs> from LSD experiment land. And... Uh, and Charlie had like two joints. It's like we're gonna, because uh, that was the entrance fee. So, um, so, so we're gonna smoke two joints with Del Close. And and uh, and at this, uh, no, that's a lie. Yeah, I was getting high a lot my senior year. So I was gonna say I wasn't really used to getting high, but it's a lie. No, I was excited to do to smoke a couple joints with this guy. And we sat down, and, and Charlie's kind of leading the conversation, and we get through the first joint, and I'm pretty fucking high. And then Dell's talking about teamwork, and he's talking about group mind and uh, the committee and uh, uh, this long-form stuff that they do and the team aspect of it. And we start the second joint, and, I, and then I, that was my window in, and I said, oh, you know, this is, it's really cool that you mentioned team. I'm from a sports background thinking this is going to be the thing that opens Dell up. Uh, I'm from a sports background, and the whole team aspect of this uh, is something that interests me because uh, I feel like I would be naturally attuned to team approaches and improvisation. In fact, and here is the big one, uh, you know, my dad played football for Notre Dame. And Dell was hitting the joint, and he doesn't move, and he hits a joint and goes, really? I taught John Belushi how to shoot up. <laughs> and I was like a kid, like, I was like, in those, any kid movie where the kids all go, wow. <laughs> that was me, and it was, that's when it's like, Yes, I'm going to come study at Second City, but I'm going to study with whatever this is because I couldn't have, like, this is the opposite of my dad. So you come and you study both at Second City and I.O.? Yep. Yep. At the same time. Uh, so I, uh, somewhere, I think it was like somewhere around, uh, I studied with, I took eight weeks with Sharna and then I was with Dell for like two years. I was on a house team that warmed up for Barron's Barracudas. Uh, then when they kind of split, uh, we were a team called uh, Nietzsche's and Nephews, or Nephews and Nietzsche's, because improv team names. Uh, I went through Second City, and I was part of the uh, first uh, graduating classes from the conservatory. Uh, and that's where I met Pasquese. Dave Pasquese. Uh, Bonnie Hunt, and oh, I'm bad at name dropping. Let's just say Pasquese. He's all that matters. <laughs> and then, then you, you, you get hooked up with the, the annoyance. Again. And then Mick and those guys moved up between, uh, by 87 or 88, everybody was here and we were doing splatter theater. Can you tell us what the annoyance philosophy is in improv? Um, I think the thing 
I think the big one that we started off being known for was uh, the best way to take care of your scene partner is to take care of yourself first. And so what that means over the years has become all kinds of different things. And then those of us were around at the beginning, that's, that's kind of, uh, that's what Mick put forth. And that meant take care of yourself means leave all your bullshit at the door, leave all, though we were crazy, uh, messed up people, we had to leave all of that at the door and come. And the other big thing was um, anybody can play at the annoyance. You just have to be a nice person. And then Mick was the person who got to see if you were nice or not, <laughs> which is a riddle in and of itself. Um, but I think that's, at the baseline, I think that's... So let's, let's, let's take that, that, you know, like hold on to your shit, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, hold on to your shit is a bad one, though. Okay, but, but let, let's... Because really, when, when this was introduced, this, this is kind of revolutionary because in improv. Because right. so much was like we're taking off our partner, let's wait for our partner, make our partner look good. And this was almost like... It was, it was, it was, it was like counter to what all that had been. That's right. So, so explain when they say like, you know, you come out and you're a strong character and you hold on to that and what that, what that philosophy is. I think that's evolved now. And I think that Mick probably, and, and I mean, I, I retired, I'm a, I'm a loving supportive alumni. Once we closed in 2000, then I came back to IO and Mark and I started touring Bass Prop. So what's preached now at Annoyance is like 16 years of I've So what there. is your understanding that how you teach that, that specific thing of annoyance, which is holding on to the first thing that you create? Okay. So it's, um, what I teach is, uh, I teach it from the point of view of emotion. So in, for characters, we have our actions, our words, and our emotions. And the emotions can also be whatever fire is burning inside you that influences the way you do what you do or the way that you say what you say. So that is, uh, uh, that is how you do what you do is who you are. And that's a scenic approach as opposed to you're a cop and I'm a motorist who's speeding. That's a, that's a, a circumstantial definition. But I say that emotion's the most important because it's the thing that your scene partner can't fuck up. They can deny your words, they can walk through your object work, but if you're in an emotional state, that's something that you have control of. And I, I reject, uh, not, I've evolved from you have to hold on to your shit uh, by also attacking another note that I think is the most overrated note in improv, which is play to the top of your intelligence. What does that mean for, to you? Uh, it means it's a useless note that's easy to say that doesn't mean anything anymore. It meant Dell would throw that at you so he can make somebody cry and leave and feed his enormous ego. Um, but I say play to the top of your character's integrity, and that is declare who you are right now, love who you are, and receive the world through who you are with a willingness to change honestly with that person. And, I, and my, my prescription is you've got 30 seconds. You've got 30 seconds to get intact. You've got 30 seconds to know what your shit is or your thing is that you're holding on to. So what's the patterns? What's the repetition? But if in the first 15 seconds you can discover or decide how you feel in the emotion, emotions are flexible, they're not fixed, and we project emotion in order to receive emotion, we receive emotion in order to be changed. If you get that intact in the first 15 seconds and then ruthlessly, playfully engage your scene partner, the, uh, the environment, the context, uh, then you have a chance of not being self-conscious because this is a psychological fact and I've brought it down to this. The, from 15 to 30 seconds in an improv scene is the golden time. That's the amount of time it takes any improviser to hate what they've initially done. <laughs> and that's, uh, that will trigger your self-consciousness. And if you're already in an emotional state that's active and fluid and moving and engaged and in response in the first 15 seconds, then that will replace the self-loathing that comes with you hating that you've opened a cabinet and haven't pulled anything out of it. And I can't pull anything out of it anyway because nothing in there is funny. And now that pattern of thinking just means good luck with the next three minutes of your scene that feels like 10 minutes. Great. So let's take your philosophy uh, and put it into an example. All right. All right. So. Oh. Yes, you and I. Um, so like, like improvise? Yeah. You, why, don't okay. we, why don't we okay. 
you let's go into the improv impro, let's go into the improv part of, okay. of this okay and let's let's let help me out how how to approach this because this excites me okay because i love the i love the emotions i think the emotions are really important yeah, I, I'd like to learn something. Yeah, I, yeah. but and you always say that because I listen to your podcast and you well, always say, you. and I love that you, I love that you say you always want to learn something. But like you're so skilled, it's what I admire about you is that you you already know everything. But that's now. I know you hate it when people compliment you. No, I thank you for that. But I feel lately like I'm stuck and I play the same thing over and over again. Cool. So the internal is what matters. This is where we intersect. Okay. And it's both the emotional and the psychological. Okay. So what's going on inside, right? Yeah. Okay. So uh, why don't we just, uh, let's do this. Let's just take a breath and, uh, and just drop our heads and then we'll each choose an emotion and we'll just uh, see, we'll give and take the emotion okay. in silence and we'll start. Okay. Okay. Right? Can, oh, can I just say something? Yeah. Okay, great. Before I, my you just ruined my character. <laughs> I'm kidding. <laughs> What? I know you too well. I know you. Yeah, I know. And my, my way is okay. Yeah. Well, let's do it your way. Okay. No, 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 no. My my go to is always anger. Right. Why? Sure. Okay. So, so, so before I was even going, I'm like, oh, I'm gonna go to anger, and so I'm judging. Do you you know what I'm saying? I do. I'm judging that I'm going to anger. Right. Anger is a secondary emotion, and okay. when you judge the anger, that's just anger giving you the psychology that keeps anger alive. Okay. Anger is just love with a blockade in front of it. Okay. So do you want to do therapy or should we do a scene? I, I'd like to do a scene, but I okay. just wanted to turn that over. So you want to give me anger and then I can deal with it? Or do you want to just make random choices? Let's just make random choices. So it's an emotion. All right. It's just an emotion. I just want to say when I hear emotion, it's like anger is the first one that I grab onto. Now, I teach it because I see a lot of people, they're afraid to go to anger. And anger is, I think, it makes me... It makes me angry when people avoid anger because that we're here to show life. Were you angry the whole time? Or is that just you just encountered their fear and then that made you angry? Are you constantly angry is my question. In life, yes. I love it. Okay, great. Okay. All right. So let's go to, your, go okay. down and we'll come we'll, up with yeah, the emotion. We'll go down and we'll just we'll just we'll start with an emotional place and then we'll see what happens. Okay, great. Okay, here we go. Ned. You're graduating today. You're graduating with me. <laughs> Don't make it about me. I am. Because you, you got two points higher than I did. You're not really happy about that. I am too. I'm happy for all my friends. Oh, look how much you're overcompensating. Me? me? You're not happy with this. I don't understand why you have the first chair and I have to sit behind you. Well, it's because I have the first chair. You're, you're upset with me. I'm not upset with you. I'm just wondering why you have that uh, tassel uh, on your hat and I don't have a hat. Ah. <laughs> because you chose not to bring your hat? No, I never got one. Oh. Oh, someone was giving me a slight dig. Oh, I'm sorry. Oh, really? Really, yes, are you? Yes. I am sorry. Oh, yes. I'm sorry. Oh. I'm sorry that we have to do this. You are such a jerk. Yeah. And you like it, don't you? I like it because you know what? After we graduate, we never have to see each other again well, in life. Ever. Good. So what we can do is just lock in this moment, and this can be the way that we remember each other. Don't... <laughs> Don't turn my thesis into my, and shove it into my face. Oh, look. I'm the one who came up with the oh. whole lock it in mm. moment stuff. Yeah, right. Mr. Succession of Snapshots equals life. <laughs> the only time I enjoyed you is when we got high together. That's when you were really at your most brilliant. I, I did it because you were there and I wanted to impress you. Did you? I did. And then I found out you were a jerk. Why would you want to impress a jerk? What type, of, what type of horrible upbringing did you have that made you walk through life wanting to impress a jerk? You are so condescending. Do you know that? I have to be some flavor of jerk. Condescending is a very high status flavor of jerk. <laughs>
I know what you're trying to do, Nathan. Do you? I know what you're trying am to I do. Am I trying or am I doing it? Oh, fuck you. Oh, look, I, I won a do battle there. <laughs> you're trying to psych me out for my speech, and it's not going to work. You're trying to get me upset. You're trying to get me to go off the rails, and it's just not going to happen. It seems like it happens. It is not happening. It, seems like it, it is not. Don't happens. put words into no, my mouth. A, I can't. You've written words. Surely you're going to say the words that you've written. Surely everything is going to go perfectly just as you planned it. Surely everything is going to go great. You are, an, you are an asshole. You are a grade A asshole. Oh, why? Tell you, me why. I don't have to tell you because why. Because you love me, that's why. Oh, that's and bullshit. And I don't love you the way that you that's want bullshit. me to I made, love you. I made one pass at you, and you Miss, turned it down. I did not turn it down. Yes, I was you coy. did. I wanted to keep you on the hook. And you weren't persistent enough to get all of this. <laughs> you are... T you could have had this. What do you think makes me an asshole? You could have had this, but you gave up. How dare you give up on this? <laughs> Don't... How dare Don't you? you? Don't you look no, at what you no, could have had. No. Look at what you could have had. I know, I'm looking at it. Yes. I'm looking at it. You would have looked at Don't. me this way earlier, then maybe this would be a different conversation. I made a pass at you at that party. I thought it was pretty clear that I was interested in I you. I knew exactly well, what it was. Well, why didn't you follow up because on it? Because it was so pedestrian. <laughs> I'm worth more than a wink and a raise of a gin and coke. I said, would you, hey, would you like to join me out on the porch for a gin and coke? Wink. Right. You didn't say wink. You, you. <laughs> I didn't join you straight away, but it didn't mean I wasn't going to well, join I you. Well, I was eventually. out there for ninety seconds. Well, that's... I have the ninety second rule, and I left the party. I wasn't going to go oh, back in and be humiliated. Now we're to the crux of it. You've made a rule for yourself that 90 seconds is the only amount of time you'll allow yourself to be affected by someone. Yes. I need longer than 90 seconds. Well, you are going to get it. You had your chance. I was going to... I lied. I waited 120 seconds. For you. I kept looking in there, and you were laughing and holding court, telling your stories. And all the while you were... Counting till 120. Yes, well, under my you breath. Fully waiting for me. You were counting time. You were marking time. Yes. I didn't want to feel the rejection again from you. Why, you don't remember the first time we met? Of course I remember. When we were in, when we were in undergrad? Yes, of course. We the, were in biology together. Yes, we were in the biology. We were, we were going to be lab partners. Yes. And you asked me if I would be your uh, lab partner, and, and I said, let me think about it. Right, and, and that, was a, that was a rejection. That was a rejection. You rejected me. I was me. thinking about Why it. Why don't you just spit in my face? And you know what? I took many years of therapy and I was on many, many medications and I thought I had turned a corner four years later when I saw you at that party. I have also taken many years of therapy. But I don't need medication. I am my own medication. <laughs> and right now, you're my medication a little bit. Let's, let's put this aside. I, I, I don't want this to be the last day. I don't day. want this. I, I don't want this. If we could do this more, then I could see us being friends for life. I was thinking more than friends. Really? Yes. I'm taking a chance, and I'm counting 90 seconds in my head right, right. now. Oh. <laughs> You're waiting. I'm with you. What does that mean? What does more than friends mean? It means a relationship. Aren't we in a relationship now? Oh, why do you have to make this so complicated? What? I'm not. Nathan. I just want to know the nature you, of what does it. Do you just want me for and sex? I, do, I don't blame you. I don't blame you. <laughs> I can't blame you. Yes, sex and a relationship with sex. Dating. Living together. Yes. Hanging out. Yes. Shared responsibilities and yes, shared space. Yes, all of that. If you tell me that you'd like the bathroom clean, I demand that I have time to think about it. 90 seconds. 
<laughs> I'm almost there. Nathan, I love you. I love you too. Yeah! <laughs> All right. Yeah. Yes. So tell us on what you you set up, the philosophy and stuff like that, how we adhered to that. So we both chose an up emotion, mm -hmm. and we're both old enough improvisers to not hate that we've both found ourselves in a happy place. Right. That's step one. Right. Most people under 30, when they make eye contact and they're both happy, go, ah, oh, fuck. <laughs> Why is that, you think? Um, because improvisers in their hearts don't want to be happy, and they don't want improv to be easy. Am I right? Am I right? Yeah. Right? Yeah. Because we're still we're still in reaction uh, we're still in reaction to our parents' reaction to quitting the basketball team to do theater right. and whatever that's a metaphor for. By hands, yes, yeah. no. Yeah. Or like, if you listen, what the fuck is he talking well, about? Well, if you listen to the beginning of this podcast, they'll, they'll know exactly. What mm -hmm. All right. So, so, so we were both happy, mm -hmm. and uh, like I almost felt like we were back in a Dell class. So we were both happy, and then it's just like remember where you say with Dell's just now just stare at each other. Just nobody do anything. And then like you're waiting for a right. face twitch or something. Right. And that's what used to drive Mick crazy. It's like, <laughs> it's, uh, so we were both happy. We looked at each other. And it was just kind of the way that we tilted our heads. Uh, and then uh, I will usually... I won't consciously go, but I, uh, one of the things I teach is the way to actively... To begin actively listening through your emotion is to choose curiosity or suspicion. Which so those if I'm curious about I'm curious about your emotion and your state so that I can get evidence to bring you closer. So to what me. were you doing in that scene that that was pulling the curiosity? What um, were the things that you were asking? So so my my emotion was something like envy, and then I was curious that you were happy, and then you moved your head, and that moved me into suspicion, and my suspicion then became took me into the base of where's our status without thinking about status, and this because I know you, it's, uh, then it's that thing where like 15 seconds here, like it's like, oh, I'm improvising with Jimmy again. This is nice. Right. And then I let that go. Mm -hmm. and, and then I think you spoke first. I think I said Nathan. Yes. And I said Thomas. Mm -hmm. I, I, forget, I forgot right. your name. I was pretty sure it was Tom, but then right. I just didn't worry about it. And we kind of had characters right from the get-go. Right. Mm -hmm. And then it's... Uh, and so then I had that running track of judgment, like, oh, we're doing something British. Uh, fine. Or right. is this British? I'm fine. Oh, we're high status. Oh, that's fine. Oh, right. these are bullshit accents. That's right. fine. Oh, and what are we? That's fine. Oh, graduation. Uh, so like the running, like the running commentary of the inner critic was like going that whole time. And it's just like, that's like in one ear and out the other. It's like, oh, that's fine. What's he doing? And so then my envy, my envy turned a little bit to jealousy. And then when I saw that you were accusatory or uh, oh no then I played a game somewhere like 30 to 60 seconds in that was based on our original conversation about anger which was like oh I'm gonna make you angry uh, and then because we both started this so now it's like we have to move because we're doing theater and it's like as a character objective and it's us it's like why not try to move you to anger and see why from mm -hmm. you right um, so that's how we both uh, so it's an uh, and there was still uh, the, my starting place was something like envy without it being rigidly envy. And so that traveled with me. And so that is what turned into ultimately like I wanted you because that's what the envy was. And then that's where the love affair I think came from. Mm -hmm. And I was basically, whenever we would hit peaks of like new discoveries or when we, when we peaked it out, the, um, the, I was projecting my envy onto you, which is what gave me this fabulous body. Uh, and so that's that's kind of that's the circumstances that I discovered based in what you were giving me. What was it like for you? For me, it was it was um, you know uh, started positive, and that's always a scary place for me. <laughs> and then um, then I'm like, okay, there, there's there's something more to this relationship. Yeah. I don't know if we're you know if if we're an item or not or what's going on, but we started to explore it, and we're to me. 
where it gets really exciting is when we start to make the discovery about the relationship right. and the party and the past and all of that stuff. And also, you know, getting me angry. I knew that's what you were going for. I'm like, right. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get angry at this guy. Yeah. It, but but what's, what I was thinking was what's underneath this anger? What's underneath this tension? And then I thought, okay, let's just, at the end, let's... Let's have this character just say he loves him because yeah. that that's what he's been fighting for, you know, the last six or seven years. That's what was there the whole time, right? And that's um, and that's a thing. Like like the easiest call in the world is the reason we're fighting is because we either love each other or we love the same thing. That's mm -hmm. Dell, right? It's like people fight wars over this thing that they both love or covet, and so and I'm and that's just like. Uh, I knew we loved each other, but we were just playing that game. And then, like, the game of the scene was we were almost together, but then we were apart. Mm -hmm. And so then we found we found the circumstances around that. So it's like uh, like the party. Once we'd established the initial game, then it's like we're kind of UCB in it, right? Like, if, if this is true, what else is true? So then the party, and then the 90 seconds, and then I was playing the psychology. Uh, so identifying that you're more thinking about time justified my like I don't have the emotional available availability from you that I need because you're focused on time and so that's that one of those silent things that like we could do that scene for an hour I like and I also got a feeling like these two guys were going to pledge the same fraternity and then at the last minute like I didn't show up for the initiation and you went to this fraternity then I went to the rival fraternity maybe mm -hmm. or like all of those things were just possibilities that I just keep in the back of my brain that can come up based on what it is now um, but in the context of this scene you were the one that started laying out the remember wins and so so I was mindful of like okay I'll let you do that twice and then if a third one comes up then I'll label the specificity of that because of rule of three so that's in there too but it's all soft focus it's, it's not I'm not worried or I'm not I'm not in a hurry to do anything I'm just still I'm in this moment and if, if we start to go this way then I'm going to go with you Right. There was a couple times where I looked in your eyes. And I'm like, I'm lost. I don't know what, what what's next. And then once I kind of made that, you know, like, okay, that's where I am, I could calm down and get back into it. Because sometimes the silence can, you know, freak freak you out a little. Yeah. But I mean, I think you were never freaked out. No. It just, I mean, when, I think it's because of years. Like it, when we're in that silence, we both know how we are. And if part of our mind is like, holy shit, now what? Uh, all we we know to just we can look at each other and because we have that familiarity it's just what's the next thing and so and I never uh, maybe I had maybe half a thought of I wonder how long this is gonna go but I was but it was that's just like natural it's like oh you know the way you describe it it almost sounds like there's there's like the improviser you know, like the character, the improviser, mm -hmm. improvising, and then all this stuff in the back, the judgment, how long this is going to go, when are they going to take the lights out, this wasn't a good initiation, almost like a critic behind all of that. Yeah. Is that how you experience it? Um, yeah, and I, like, I describe it in terms of psychology, so I, I study the psychology of self-consciousness, and lightly, without going too deep, it's, it's our emotional brain and our right brain is the, is the part of our brain that knows we're connected. Uh, we don't use, it doesn't use words. Um, and it is fine with whatever is here being here. It's just an acknowledgement. Our left brain uses words. Our left brain is where our, the voices of our inner critics and our dissatisfied father and all that lives. Our left brain is the one that makes us panic. And our left brain also is where our ego lives and the word I lives. So our left brain knows that we're here alone with somebody else who's alone. Because that part of our brain can only fixate on me. And it's the right brain, it's the emotion, the music, it's that stuff which leads us into concert with each other. So when you hear that critic, because a lot of people when they start out, yeah. and even I experience, sometimes the critic can be louder than the improviser. Often. What do you What do? You do? How... Um, it, it doesn't bother me anymore. <laughs> but, but how do I, I mean, what I teach is, um, I teach do's instead of don'ts. And I teach accept that the critic will be here. And you don't have time for that now. Uh, so, so I wish I, I, I wish I could apply that to my life. Man, yeah, I know. <laughs> I know, but it's emotion, right? It, I mean, like if you're in emotion and once you're playing jazz with each other, 
once your once your emotions are are in in response, so you're in a loop of responsiveness to each other. You don't. That's always more interesting and compelling to me than it is to listen to. Right, but that's that's easy for us to say with 30 years improvising. If you're starting out, and I see this in class all the time, that critic is much more. His voice is much more louder than the improviser making the move, starting with an emotion, making a strong initiation. Mm -hmm. What do you tell students? If um, if putting them into rep emotional repetitions where they're just giving and taking emotion before they speak, if that doesn't quite work, then another thing that I believe is that all improvisers will be served by learning to speak psychology and therapy talk so that you can speak what you're feeling right now, honestly. And so if, if they're right in the middle of the scene and it's... Uh, Let's do it right now. We're right in the middle of the scene. Oh, okay. Uh, uh, so, the, uh, so just... Uh, 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 speak because my honest truth is like I'm fine so you can just be you and be not fine right uh, I'm feeling scared right now uh, is it because you're a father yeah uh-huh and uh, there's all these people watching me mm-hmm and so um, do you feel like you've been out of the game for a little bit yeah yeah I feel like I've been doing this for a long time and I'm not getting any better mm-hmm and are you afraid that uh, our scene sucks because we're similar type of improvisers and we don't have anybody funny here? Yes. Yeah. yeah. And we didn't get enough laughs. Yeah. 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 So, um, and so is it, uh, so what do we have available to us to be compelling to these people that are watching so you don't let your baby down? Uh, I guess just be me. Yeah. Because you're enough and yeah. I'm enough. Right. Now, will you have them say that in the middle of a scene? Uh, maybe. Because, I mean, is, when you teach, isn't it all, you, you know your game plans, but it all depends. I'm, I'm improvising. Yeah. I know I'm going to do this and this and this, but then the most, I get the most lit up, lit up is when, when I'm like, hey, let's, you know, let's improvise. When they go, I, we have a problem or we're struggling with something, and we improvise together and we come up with a solution. And then I find something that I've never done before. That's the most rewarding. Yeah, for for me, when we get to like all the depth of what is honestly right here now as characters, as improvisers, emotionally, intellectually, psychologically, when I find those moments on stage, um, it's like the rest stop in the road trip. Like you really got to pee and you're really hungry. And then you and like you really got to pee and you're starving and you go to a rest stop and you pee and you get something delicious to eat. And it's like, ah, now let's get back and go to Wisconsin. It's like that rest stop for me is we're emotionally connected, intellectually connected, psychologically connected. We're honest. We're right here. And it's all, it all has integrity from where we started. Nobody's trying to be funny. Nobody's trying to do anything. We're just, we are being right now. Here. People listening to this podcast, They'll understand it, but oh, there are other people. They will have turned it off by right. now. But those other people are like, "My God, that sounds like a spiritual experience." Mm -hmm. um, or it's just a human experience. Great. We're going to take some questions now from the audience. Okay. We got people from all over. We've got. Did I tell you Shanghai? Yeah, Shanghai. Shanghai. I saw some of them. Some uh, of this. Yeah. Hi, what's happening? <laughs> Great. Um, so we got a question right back there. Yeah. Did you encounter that from people throughout your career a lot? And how did you deal with it? Like, did it get worse as, it, as the more you encountered it? Or did it get easier to give in? Or did you give in at all? I got to repeat the question so they can hear it on the podcast. This defiance thing. Did yeah. you experience this a lot? And, and when, you did, when it did come up, like, we'd like you to do this, how, how, did, you, how did you handle that? Um, I think some of it was part of the reason I did stand up was to I I, li I wanted to become a better writer so I could become a better improviser to make things more succinct. I've been moderately successful at that. The other thing was I I could I was at the point where it's like I can either see a shrink and tell the shrink all of this stuff, or I could turn it into stand up material. And so stand up was cathartic for me because by the time I stopped, I had an hour and a half worth of fuck my Catholic upbringing stuff. And, and, um, and while that felt great, in my last few years of doing stand-up was like my most horrific self-sabotage fucking burn everything down part of my life. Um, and then I finally realized I was just delaying seeing a shrink because that's what I needed. 
So that true answer to your question was once I started in therapy and I, once I started looking at why I'm so dissatisfied with myself or hate myself or I don't deserve happiness and like dealt with all of that shit, uh, that was really like deconstructing and destroying the foundation of my defiance. And the therapy and life journey is really just moving just to a place of acceptance and uh, it's kind of that Eastern, like practice loving kindness and try to be positive and check yourself. Um, it's always, it's almost always a better choice to listen than to talk. You know, I love that you talk about therapy. I love therapy. I'm in therapy. Mm -hmm. I love this thing you talk about. I don't deserve it. Because that's something that runs deep inside of me. Yeah. What did you find out? Why you felt you didn't deserve it and how you overcame it? Oh, I, um, it's like being an alcoholic. It's like the, the voice of I don't deserve it always is with you. And so you just make it an adorable friend that sits in the corner with the clown nose on. And then, so, so you, 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 that's how you, you got over it. How is it working in your life now? Uh, I think it's part of it's being loved. Like, like it's easy for me to love people. It's like impossible for me to let people love me, but uh, I'm very lucky that I'm loved by uh, my girlfriend, by uh, the people that I work with and play with. Um, every improviser that I play with, that I duo with when I tour around is somebody that I love and I love playing with. And we can, um, uh, you know, we were talking about Jill Bernard. Love her. Uh, before we came out. And it's like, I, uh, by applause, how many people know Jill Bernard? So she's my duo partner for Scram, and she's the most up, positive, happy, empowering, beautiful, genius, like nobody else you've ever met person. And she, uh, it really comes down to this. She was doing a podcast, and at the end of the podcast, they asked her, what's something about Jill Bernard that nobody knows? And she said, maybe it's why everybody thinks I'm so happy. And they're like, what? What do you mean? And she goes, I just, I act this way because the world is a horrible place and the only choice really is to be good to each other. And that really speaks to, that's like, I think that's a big part of it. And so knowing that, that uh, knowing that the world is so horrible makes sense that I would think that I don't deserve anything because that's just part of that horror. But another thing that Dell said, like in the last show I did with him, he said kind of offhandedly, uh, our job is to enchant and horrify. And that speaks to also life because the highest enchantment for me is being with the people that you love uh, on stage or off and, um, and being with the people that that you can allow to love you. And that's uh, the, I guess the older I get, the more I try to, if people want to express love with me, I just breathe and just try to accept it. Um, but it's, sometimes it's easy and sometimes it's not. Great, let's take another question. Great, right here. Um, how important do you find it to nail down the specifics early on in a scene? And if you don't have the luxury of somebody giving you loads that you can get there organically, do you find it at all jarring if somebody labels everything very quickly? How, how important it is it to nail those specifics down uh, at the beginning of the scene? I, I, don't, I, I think the real answer is it, it's important and it's not important. So, I mean, the answer to every improv question is it depends. <laughs> <laughs> does, does that answer your question? Yeah. No. Okay, great. Uh, some, sometimes I think early on, early on, in your first 10 years of improv, it's a good practice to play with specificity. And so the way that you play with specificity will make you more savvy in your next 10 years with how specificity is tied to your emotion and how the specificity is tied to the way that you're receiving the other person. So I'm much more a fan of playing with specificity in response to the other person as opposed to playing with specificity because the idea generator's working overtime. Great. Let's take another question. Yes, back here. Yeah. Yes. Um, we're taking a lot of class, and we are improvising things in the class, and you can see fine. Yeah. But then you go on the stage, and there's a panic coming, panic attack or something, mm -hmm. and uh, you 
proclaimed from their heart or from the honest places. And my question is, do you think you just time to get used to it or do you do something to help yourself? This whole transition, the question is this whole transition, you do, you're in class, you're doing really good work, then all of a sudden you get on stage and you panic and it's just a clusterfuck. Mm -hmm. How long did it take you to, to make that transition? I mean, maybe next year will be 40 years since I learned my first improv game, which is amazing to me. Well, what I and I still don't have a championship ring. Okay. But for, but what I me, find interesting uh, in that is you, in 1977, were doing improv in high school, which yeah. was unheard of. Yeah, I mean it was it was games and then and uh, it was games and but we would do um, we would improvise scenes, but they were she wouldn't let us talk, which was the genius. My high school shout out to Dolly Davis. Woo! <laughs> Dolly Davis, who was like she was anti mame out of makeup. Uh, for those of you over 40 who know that <laughs> reference. <laughs> um, but it, you know what? I think it took me about 25 years. And, my, and, and I'm passionate about teaching because I'm the son of a nursery school teacher and a football coach. Uh, and, and one of my goals as a teacher is to help students get to what took me 25 years to get. I want to help you try to get there like in 10. But I, I, I think... Uh, I think the learning curve is is uh, is better now, and I think that I think now students who've been doing improv for ten years were a lot farther along than I was at ten years. Um, and and god damn it, I think you're right. I think it just takes time, and uh, part of my insanity now is trying to make make it so that time doesn't matter. Because you know what's interesting when you were at the I.O. the first time, the Improv Olympic. Mm -hmm. I got the sense that it wasn't, you, you didn't hit your groove really there. No. And then you came back and you kind of had to fight your way in back to the I.O., right? Yeah. Because people weren't giving you the respect. Is, that, is, this, is this right? Yeah, kind of. I mean, it was like, uh, back in the day, like you'd, you'd study with Sharna, then you study with Dell, and then you get on a team. And then, and I did, you know, like, I rode a team, like, for, like, I was on three different teams in two years, and then I got the inevitable invitation for Sharna to explore other options, uh, and so I went What, what did that mean? She, oh, she showed you... Uh, uh, she's just like, enough of you. Right, so, okay, right. <laughs> it sounds like this, enough of you, go now, just go. Uh, and so, and then that was, like, when all the annoyance people started right. coming up, and so I did annoyance, I was finishing stand-up, I came back to I.O. again, and I got on uh, a couple of teams and I was coaching. And then that was about another year and a half or two years. And then again, go away. I'm tired. No, enough of you. And, that, and how did you take that? I mean, that's rejection, right? Yeah, it's, yeah, it's rejection. But it's also, we had already, because we had started the annoyance, it, like we, we had something. And, 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 I, and I did stand up. And that was the second time Sharna told me to go. Like, she was right. Like, there, I wasn't bringing anything new, but just like destructive assholishness. And, um, and it's always a great idea to, like, take a break and do something else. And so the second time I left <clears throat> coincided then with the end of my doing stand-up. And then I was, you know, like, I was gone from I.O. until probably, let's see, uh, probably, like, the late 90s. Uh, Dell died in 99. So I probably came back around 97. And then that's when I was, I coached and played with Georgia Pacific. And that's when we did the bat. And my, and my life was uh, more chilled out. And I had like, I would, had been in therapy. Uh, I wasn't so brash and know it. I wasn't a know-it-all asshole. And, and so, but then once I came back, yeah, I mean, it was rejection, but it's like, I don't, rejection doesn't bother me. It's like, it's all, that's what you said. But a lot of people wouldn't have come back. Oh. You, you see a lot of people that were kicked off a Herald team. They don't come back. You yeah. yeah, come. Well, because it's like I want to do long. Like I love long form. So where are you going to do long form? Well, uh, I'm going to go back and see if Sharna loves me again. And that's uh, and now it's like I mean, shit. I've been at, I've been back at IO for almost 20 years, and so I do Sharna's corporate stuff, and I still I play with Armando, and I mean I'm not you know. It's the same thing like has put me out on the road, you know, like Mark and I did bat started doing bass prov in 2000 and all of a sudden it's like, what? You can just sit there with fishing poles and beer and talk for an hour yeah. <laughs> and people love it. 
this is great. I don't have to do any sweep edits. I can just sit here and fucking think and fish. Like that was, you know, that's because you and Steph, you know, it's like you and Steph did started naked. duos. Yeah, you did naked. And, and thank you for giving me credit on that. Yeah, that's, you deserve it. Right. That's, and, and, and it's like, uh, it was you guys for about a year and then it was Bass Prob and then TJ and Dave, we, we started about the same time. And then all of a sudden, um, and like, do you remember when festivals started yes. in the nineties? Yes. The first fucking festivals. Right. We, we were at the first, we were around when improv festivals started. Yeah. Yep. Jesus Christ. I always feel, I always feel, <laughs> I, what are we, do you ever feel this? I always feel, I'm a huge self-sabotager, but yeah. I always feel like I was on the, the, the cusp of like, like one man shows, like the show I did at the Annoyance, oh, I'm yeah. 27. Mm -hmm. You know, it was me, Jeff Garland, there was a handful of people doing you it. You Garland and Odenkirk. And, right, and then there was the Naked, it was Stephanie, Stephanie Ware and I were, were the first doing the duo thing. Yeah. You know, and, it, and it's, it, you know, and then, the, you know, it's just, I, I just feel like I, I was there and I, what happened, you know? <laughs> yeah. Do you ever look back at your career and go like, we're, we're, we're in our 50s and we're still teaching improv and still doing it. How, yeah. how do you make peace with that? Uh, because that's what I'm doing. So there's no peace to you make. You don't feel stuck in improv? You don't feel like no. everyone's gone to the big leagues and I'm you're still... I'm going to fucking Romania and Bulgaria in a month. <laughs> I've been invited by Romanians and Bulgarians to go with Jill Bernard and teach and direct and play. Like, what do I have... What right do I have to be fucking dissatisfied so the question I have you is, what is wrong with me? Um, <laughs> you just love so much that you hurt. Thank you, Martin. Uh, <laughs> like a Martin to That was Martin Let's to get to uh, one more question. Tom? Improv's evolved. How have you held on to your integrity as a teacher and performer? So the funny answer is, I love Mick's answer to this, and uh, Mick's answer is, improv hasn't changed at all. People get up on stage and make shit up. Uh, so nothing's evolved. For me personally, though, the more serious answer is, I really get excited going to other countries and, and learning about other approaches to improv. And my mission as a teacher in the world is to help improvisers get the skills so that wherever they go in the world, they can improvise in that style. And whether that's uh, playing narrative stuff, like Keith Johnstone stuff, whether you're playing with uh, any number of like South American groups that are all tend to be more physical and they're very like theatrically based, um, whether it's genre stuff, whether it's short form stuff, whether you're like like some of the Eastern European, like they like dark ass or the Swedes, they like really dark, fucking crazy. Uh, uh, Anders Fors, my buddy from Sweden, I was just in Australian Canberra and he did this. Uh, yeah, we're going to have a Swedish style improv dark show. And it was like so fucking depressing. <laughs> and it's like and a, a father had... A father, like, it just, fa father had, like, raped his son because it wasn't really his son, and the mother was suicidal, and it's nighttime in Sweden, and the daughter is suicidal, and for an hour, oh. improvised, uh, and it's like, whoa, you know, and so for me, the, the, the personal evolution becomes, uh, being open to anything that is improvisation that people love, to not be judgmental, but to be curious instead, and to, um, and to find something to appreciate in any approach to improvisation. Because at the end of the day, I truly believe it could be improvisation and improvisers that save the world from the fucking politicians. <laughs> All right, we got to wrap this up. Uh, we're getting the light. Um, so we, this is the same question we end always with. Uh, Fuck. No. Oh. What piece of advice would you give an improviser or someone starting out in comedy today? <sighs> um, what advice? First, I would say, why are you doing this? And then they would give me an answer. And then I the advice I would give them is 
that sounds great. Do that. That's it. Great. Joe Bill, thank you so much for being our guest. And there you have it. It's another episode of Improv Nerd is in the Can. We are just we are just churning these things out. Even though I'm depressed and angry that I have a baby and there's no joy, I am still showing up for you. Okay? Was that a little guilt or shame? Didn't mean it that way. Didn't mean maybe I did on a subconscious level. You know how screwed up I am. Uh, I want to thank our guest, Joe Bill. What do, I love that story about the improv and giving up stand-up. And uh, I just I just loved it. I want to thank our hosts here, uh, the Beat Lounge and Jesse Swanson, uh, here at the Second City. Training Center in Chicago for hosting us, our new home, and they treat us like such rock stars. Our producer, Dan Schiffmacher, he's the one who makes me sound so slick and so professional. If it wasn't for Dan, you wouldn't be hearing my voice right now. Also, I want to thank uh, Sam Bowers, who is the director of the live version of Improv Nerd. If you want more information about me, Jimmy Corain, if you want to check me out, go to my website, jimmycorain.com. You can check out my classes, workshops, and intensives, The Art of Slow Comedy. If you're interested in bringing me to your theater or your festival, that's a good place to start. Also, you can sign up for our Improv Nerd blog. Each week, I will send you an original blog that will make you a better improv. Improviser. I don't have to remind you we're on social media. We're on social media. Go to the fan book, the fan book, the Facebook page, and like us. Uh, also, follow us on Twitter, improv underscore nerd. And then go to this great YouTube channel. Dan Schiffmonker is putting so much effort behind it. Uh, you will get clips from the live shows if you go to improv nerd podcast, all one word, and subscribe. I'd like to thank both my sponsors today. That is the Tampa Bay Improv Festival and the Green Bay Improv Festival. And of course, I want to thank you for listening. And until next time, remember, walk, don't run. Let's say uh, Seinfeld was on an island and he was blowing Boris Karloff. What would, it, what would that be like? <laughs> it might go something... Like this. Oh, Mr. Karloff, I loved you and Frankenstein, and I love giving you a blowjob. Why, Mr. Seinfeld, I'd love having you fuck.